1: Kathy Worthington welcome to our latest episode of late boomers today our special guest is Libby Gill CEO of Libby Gill and Company she is a speaker executive coach and leadership expert and has an important message for professional women about stepping into their power to drive positive results without sacrificing their personal lives
2: And I'm Mary Elkins. Libby is an award-winning author of six books and guides organizations in building an inspiring vision for the future. She's the former head of communications for Sony, Universal, and Turner Broadcasting, was the branding brain behind the launch of the Dr. Phil Show, and has worked with a number of corporations, including Bank of America, Disney, Warner Brothers, Capital One, Intel, Microsoft, and many, many more. Welcome, Libby. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. <laughs> yes,
1: we are. Please share your story about growing up and talk about the people who influenced you and the advice you took away with you.
2: Oh,
3: okay. Story of growing up is not a happy one. Um oh. I grew up in the south in a little town called Mandarin outside of of Jacksonville, Florida, right near the Georgia-Florida border, and uh, one of six kids, my oldest brother died on Christmas Day, and it sent the family into sort of a spiral, after which my father divorced my mother and uh, married his own psychiatric patient, which was kind of the, it was not done, uh, and... uh, And everything sort of broke apart at that point, and my parents went separate ways, and I went back and forth between parent and parent, and country to country, and ended up going to uh, a different high school every year, including one in Japan, and then ended up in Southern California, and they all moved back home to Florida, and I said, this is it, I'm here. And I got a job, and I got an apartment, and I put myself through college waiting tables on the Queen Mary down on Long Beach. Oh, (laughs) yeah, got my degree in theater. You know, it's totally useful, uh, minor in modern dance. And uh, and then I set out to take the corporate world by storm, which took a while. Um, but I started working for Norman Lear's company. That was my first corporate job. And somewhere along that way, Mary and I met back when you were at Daily Variety, right? At Hollywood Reporter. Hollywood, I was so close, sorry. <laughs> you were very right. close. The,
2: the, other, right one. the right other one. The other
3: one. And so, but uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was a rocky start. But it certainly uh, taught me to be resourceful, and um, and I just climbed that corporate ladder very quickly. I started at the a little company that was Norman Lear's last company, and people that aren't in the business may not or weren't in the business as it's called in LA, as if there's no other business in the world in the entertainment industry. Uh-huh um and that was his last uh small production company it was called embassy communications and i started as an assistant in the pr department and very quickly that company got merged into columbia pictures and then it was bought by coca-cola and then it was bought by sony and i just rode the wave and kept raising my hand and volunteering for stuff and in those five years i became the head of advertising publicity and promotion for sony's worldwide tv group so i I didn't even know what I didn't know about leadership and careers and growth, but I just kept
2: kept going. And I love uh, that, that you just stepped right in and <laughs> kept going. I was going to ask about your career path leading up to the motion picture and TV, and, TV industry, um, and also about you, the challenges you faced as head of communications while there.
3: Well, it was it was i was not the first woman in the door or at the senior leadership table but i was right in that second wave so it was very much a male-dominated business very quickly moving not particularly warm and fuzzy it was a it was a tough gig in a lot of ways but there was a level of of energy about the television side which i gravitated towards i didn't want to work on the film side did that very briefly That was a a different kind of challenge, and it was all about the, it was very much hurry up and wait, very slow, long development period, and then it was all about opening weekend. Television was more of this rapid pace, and I liked that, and I really thrived on that, and I kind of cut my teeth on learning how to communicate. Uh, I kind of became the writer's writer of the, the publicity and marketing departments that I was in. and. And that turned out to be a, a good fit for my skills and my temperament. And I've taken that with me since I've gone on into other businesses. But that's that's where I started. It, it was it was a bit of a challenge. And after a while, I just felt like, you know, I started launching television shows during the, the PR launches with Married with Children, which was the only show from the original Fox Network lineup that remained past one year. And that went on for 10 more years. And then I ended my career doing the media launch of the Dr. Phil show. And that was kind of the beginning and the end, the bookends of my, of my uh, entertainment PR and media launch, which taught me a lot about branding. I learned a lot about what connects with an audience, how you craft a message, what sticks with a consumer. For and example? I, um, for example, well, it depended on the, on the project and the show, but even in the early days of Dr. Phil, the people that knew him were the Oprah fans. And mm-hmm. because he was on every Tuesday, it was Tuesdays with Dr. Phil on the Oprah show. And he, he bumped up those ratings about 25% every week when he was on. And so Oprah and her wisdom, and she was, you know, one of the greatest television minds ever, decided to spin him off into his own show. And my job was to I was hired, I was the first one hired. I learned don't precede the executive producer. It's not always a pretty thing when you're the first one in the door, but I was, and started when he was still on Oprah for the last six months of that, and then helped establish him. And uh, And believe it or not, I mean, now it's hard to believe he was not a household name at that point. He was among Oprah viewers, but not among others. So I really tried to set him apart and establish him as a different kind of talk show host. And there weren't a lot of people that there weren't a lot of, of psychologists at the, that point there was a lot of advice shows but he was one question i offered many times was he really a doctor and yes he really was a phd psychologist so uh we did a lot of things taking a page from the film world i had people rather than send him out on any kind of pr tour i had them come to us and we set up junkets just like they did in the film business and we sort of rewrote the model of of how you launch a talk show uh, with the message that's the great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Were you were you already writing your books at this point?
3: I had written one book at that point, which you don't see up here on the shelf because it's, as we say now, off-brand. But I wrote my first book while I was still at Universal, and I, I left the communication side and I decided I would go down a step. I used to call it working my way down the corporate ladder until people said, don't say that. But I went from being the head of the communications department and I, I worked my way into the development side, which people said, what do you know about the creative world? I said, look, I've got a degree in theater. I've always been a creative person. I'd sold a couple of screenplays as a kid, never got made, but you know, I was sort of in that world. So I wiggled my way in there working on the Sally Jesse Raphael show and then on the development side and along, along there, I went down, I lost a stripe, I went down a step no more staff, no more budgets, no more, you know, it was great. It was so liberating <laughs> that it was really fun. And I started, I worked in, on reality, on developing reality shows. And about that time, I thought, I'm going to write a book. I better teach myself how to write a book. And I didn't want to write a PR book because I knew I was going I was on my way out of that. And so I just kind of looked around and thought, what from my life can I pull out as a starter book? And in my family, I was the, primary breadwinner. My then husband was the stay-at-home dad. And I looked around and said, that there are a lot of women doing this. And certainly a lot in creative fields, because there are a lot of men who were actors and musicians and, you know, they'd work and then they'd not work and, and they'd be home with the kids. And so I wrote a book proposal. I got a book off of Amazon on how to write a book proposal, you know, mm-hmm. 20 bucks. I spent a good nine months trying figuring out how to write it. And I wrote this book, and then I sold it in multiple offers, my first book. And I had to explain it. By that time, the company had changed, and Mary, certainly you'll remember these days, but, but uh, Barry Diller had come in and bought a portion of Universal Studios, which was one of those, wait a minute, how does this work kind of deal? It was very unusual that he bought the domestic piece of television. And I went with that company, but by then my contract was... Back then, everybody was, if you were above a director level, you had a contract. And my contract had lapsed because the new company had come in. And, you know, it was like, don't do me any favors. I don't really need a contract. If somebody comes looking for me, I'll do it. But meantime, I was a little bit of a free agent. And so I told them I was writing. First, I was writing a blog, and then I was writing guest blogs. and Then I was writing a book proposal, and I just kept sending notes to HR for the file. (laughs) And they kept saying, like, what? What are you? Nobody could figure out what I was doing. I thought full disclosure, good way to go. And then when I sold the book and then I was writing the book, I, I got called into my boss's boss's office. I mean I got called into New York at a meeting to explain myself and uh, and it was sort of put to me. I said, well first of all, you don't uh, you know my what I do outside of work time is really my business and then there's no conflict. I don't see how. My book conflicts with Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or Jerry Springer. It's a parenting book. And so nobody could quite wrap their heads around that, which I understood. That's the corporate mentality. And they kept comparing it to, well, there's a a group at Sony, a group of animators who have a band. And Sony made a claim that they own their music, apparently. I don't know the legalities of it. But people would keep comparing, all my creativity was owned by them, and I begged to differ. Uh-huh. And so but finally, they came back and said, look, sign a new contract, or we're really going to need you to, you know, go on your way and do your projects. And I said, great, it's been great working for you. I love you all. And I'll go on my way now. And then it was just, you know, divine intervention, because my dad was very ill. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of things I was getting divorced, my dad was Ill. everything was like collapsing in my personal life. And they gave me a six month consulting deal and an office. So I just continued writing, I finished my book, I sold my book and I started coaching at that time. People either trying to get into the entertainment industry and figure out how they wanted to fashion a career or some people who were exiting and trying to figure out what to do next. And I was very interested in that career transition and people in in Hollywood certainly knew I had done it and people were coming to me for advice and coaching. And I thought, this is it, this is what I'm gonna do.
1: Do you take the same approach to leadership and challenge with your corporate clients as you did with the studios?
3: In some ways, yes. I teach people to think for themselves. It's not a world where you're going to get a guaranteed job for 30 years and a pat on the back and a watch. You know, it's a world that is moving rapidly, that young people certainly have seen no continuity. They haven't, they've seen their parents get fired. They've seen their parents go through recessions. They're not expecting that kind of world. And even the the leaders that I deal with, it's what do you want to do with your life and your career? And I do think exactly what you all talk about, Kathy and Mary, is, is, is what is your, maybe not your exit strategy, although that's good too, but what's your third act? What do you yeah. want to do next? And I'm all about ha- have a plan, have a dream and put it into action. It doesn't have to be overnight. You can use, and I have a lot of women I coach that are in that last stage of their career, that kind of legacy phase of, you know, I've done everything I wanted to do in the corporate world, now what do I wanna do? That's really fun and really
2: purposeful and that's really exciting stuff. And and on that same note, what would you like to say or relay to professional women, or for that matter, all women, um, about stepping into their own power?
3: Figure out what really moves you, and if if you don't know what that is, and I believe everybody does, they just got to uncover some stuff to get right down to it. You know, where does your energy pull you? You can work a ten hour day and be absolutely enthused and inspired and energized, or you can work a ten hour day and be abs, or you can work a four hour day and be absolutely miserable. So, which would you rather do? And what are the things that you're doing that make your heart sing? And if you can figure out how to wrap a job or a career or your own business around that, which is basically what I did. I didn't know exactly what I was doing when I left the corporate world. I just knew I'd done it. It was great. I was ready to move on. and, And I'd never run a business. I'd never even really thought I wanted my own business. But at that point, it was like, it's time for a change. I want to do something that is... It's about communication, it's about speaking, it's about teaching, training, writing, and it's about helping people find the career path that, that really speaks to them, whether that's corporate world, entrepreneurship, nonprofit, volunteerism, whatever that is. And what do you
1: tell women about how to do less and accomplish more?
3: Yeah, it's, you, focus about, you focus on the things that matter. You focus on a few things that are in your zone of genius and, and either outsource uh, delegate or forget the rest if 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 an activity is on your i would like to do this sometime in my lifetime and it's no more important than that cross it off and do something else i will never run a marathon i thought about it for years <laughs> by the time i got to 50 and hadn't done one i was like you know what never mind that's not, <laughs> not going to happen i'll do yeah. i'll do yoga i'll do something else
2: Yeah, I don't think I'm going to run a marathon either. Me either. (laughs) What do you think when you talk about insight, influence, and impact in your speaking engagements? And tell us about how these elements can simplify the path to success. Yeah.
3: Well, when you first think about it, you've got exactly what you said, Kathy. You've got to do less to have that, that moment of insight. However you get that deep level of reflection, walk in nature, meditation, prayer, singing, swimming, whatever it is that that gets you centered and focused so you can hear your voice voice of the universe whatever you call it but you really get focused on ah this is what i'm meant to do this is what i do best this is what i love and as an entrepreneur we sometimes have to add to that and this is what the marketplace wants from me if you're you know you got to make a living you got to ask that practical question once you have that insight about what you should not should in a sense of what I want to be doing, then you've got to get very clear on that. Then think about, well, how do I rally others to either take advantage of my skills, what I have to offer to follow me on this journey, to speak to other people about what it is I can help them with. And that's where you build that influence. And that's based on credibility. What have you done that matters to other people? What, what is in your, your expertise that you can speak to that other people say, oh, I get it, she's done it. And then it's about visibility. So if you've got that credibility, you know don't keep it to yourself. This is the shout out from the rooftops moment when you were building that influence. It's what you're doing. You're out there speaking to these audiences of people about how do you fashion your third act? How do you figure out what you really wanna do? And you're not hiding it. You are stating it, and you're having other people state it. That's that level of influence. And that, when you combine the insight and the influence, that's when you begin to make an impact. Hmm. In your own career, in other people's lives, in your community, in politics, in nonprofit, in whatever it is you choose, you stop trying to do it all, and you focus on what you really want to do and what you do well.
1: And 2020 was a tough year for businesses. And what's your advice on how to stay motivated in times of stress and challenge and on navigating corporate change or your own personal business?
3: Yeah, it, it was a tough year. It's everything just came crashing down around us. And I saw, as I'm sure you did, people responded so differently. Some people had an immediate meltdown. That was me. Immediate meltdown and then get over it. Other people, it didn't catch up with them until later. It was sort of that cumulative effect. But I do think we need to look at, you know, what were our lessons learned? What can we take from that? What did we learn about ourselves? Our own confidence, our resourcefulness, our empathy that kicked in, the helping and service we did for other people. And and look to that to see, I survived this. How did I do that? And the fact that we did survive... I mean, and that's that's a literal distinction. It's we survived a crisis, and what, how did we go into that well of reserve that we have that got us through? So I think we should all be applauding ourselves for what we did for ourselves and our families and others to pull through that crisis, and then again to go back to what is what is it that feeds you? And, and I always call these the liberators and the limiters. The, people or the things in your life, there are people that they, it feels like they were put on the planet to cheer you on. You know, those people that light up a room that make you feel like you can do anything that you can live that dream. And those are people that just set you free. And the more you can surround yourself with those people, the more you you're on your way to living that life you really want. Then there's that other pool of people, those limiters that just, you know, they're the ones that burst your bubble. They're the ones that bring you down. Sometimes we need those folks. I'm married second time around to an attorney. And, you know, we're the half full, half empty. I'm the gushing with trust. And and he's the reality check. And it's a really great balance. But we do need those people that are the truth tellers that are going to set us straight when we get a little bit, you know, way out there. But those people that are just the ones that zap our energy, that are always down to me, those are the people to avoid or, you know, sometimes they're in our life or our family or our our bosses, or our corporate world. You gotta manage your energy and your time with them. You've got to think about, gee, do I really want my mother to visit for a week or would three days do it? <laughs> um, do we, do I really want to spend, do I want that negative energy from my colleague? Am I going to let that into my psyche or am I going to say, yeah, thanks. Great idea. And then go on my way and filter some of that out. So yeah. those are choices we have to make.
2: Absolutely. Talk about the strategy of hope and talk about its psychological effects. Yeah. Um, I was always
3: I always found I, I I mentioned my early life and it was challenging. And, you know, I was a kid of a psychiatrist, a doctor, scientist, where things like self-help books were frowned upon. I literally I remember vividly reading Psycho-Cybernetics, which was a was written in 1960, one of those early groundbreaking self-help books. I hid it under my mattress so like a playboy or something so nobody in my family would see that I was reading a self-help book they were sort of considered quackery so I was always looking for how do I get to the next step how do I get to the next step and even as a as a kid as a teenager sort of it just just reading what I could, listening to people, storing up that kind of energy. And to me, that was always, it was hope what got me out of bed. It was hope that got me through tough times. And the book that I wrote about that family journey and and coming out the other side of that was called Traveling Hopefully. And it was after a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson, who said, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive, Arrival's great, but you can't wait your whole life for arrival. You've got to, you know, be hopeful and joyful along the way. And then later as a coach, I found there was a body of science a little bit like the happiness research around hopefulness. And I studied that and I brought some of those tenets of hope, which is a belief that change is possible, an expectation that your future depends solely on you, that you drive the outcomes. And then it's a combination of willpower and waypower, sort of staying the course, that get you to that desired result. And I started bringing that into the corporate world, that sort of having a a hope-driven perspective on culture and future and the way business is done. That looking for the silver lining. And the pandemic was all about that. How do you how do you look for the you know the moments we could go outside the that times when the weather was good, when a city opened up, or you got your kids to play in the backyard with other kids. You know, those moments of hopefulness that, yeah, we'll get through this. And it's the strength and the gathered community of other people, even though most of it was on Zoom, like we are now, that got us through that. And so that, to me, is hope in action.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that. I love that. I I love that clarification. And what's your philosophy on creating a lift as you climb Ah. culture at work?
3: I've been talking about that forever, and I don't know where I got that or made it up, but it's a a lift at you as you climb mentality is, you know, I'm on my journey. I'm on my way to success. I'm a pretty rapid mover. I've learned that sometimes I can overwhelm. I'm either energizing or exhausting people. There doesn't seem to be much in between. (laughs) But it's it's really that attitude of take somebody. I mean, you two have paired up for a reason. You take somebody on each arm and take them with you. Take them as you lift, as you climb, whether it's the corporate ladder, the business ladder, the spirituality, personal. Take them with you on the journey. Enlighten somebody in a little way, in a huge way whatever you can do to, to lift them as they're, as they're moving forward. You see some people that were slogging through the pandemic and it was so difficult to just give them a moment of, of, of hopefulness, of joyfulness, reminding them that life will be good again. We really will get there. And in fact, we are getting there. And so it, it's really that, is adding that, that positivity to the-
1: Can I just say how moved I am that you used Mary and me as an example. Look yes. what you're
3: doing. You found a way, and, and I, women do this instinctively. I think we're really good at it. It's like, you know, grab another gal. Let's do this together. It's more fun. It's more joyful. You can challenge each other. I'm sure you sometimes are poking and prodding about how do we do this better? How do we do that better? And it's that balance of challenging each other and cheering each other on, which I'm sure you do a lot of. And uh, that's how we get through the tough times.
2: Absolutely. And our, we started the podcast at the beginning of this uh, pandemic. And now it's been a year and it's wonderful. It's, we've lifted each other.
3: And I bet you've learned in the pandemic there. I certainly found a creative spurt in there. Some people I know had to kind of withdraw and pull back. But to me, it was like a time of, hey, well, I, I had my meltdown. it was like, I just fell apart. I thought I've worked so hard to build this business. And now, and I do a lot of corporate speaking gone in one day, (sighs) the whole calendar was gone. And, and I thought, nobody's going to hire an executive coach. I can't go into businesses. I've coached online as long, you know, people don't know. Zoom's been around since 2011, but it has, and I've worked on it for a decade. Uh, But um, I thought there's so many obstacles to hiring outside people. Nobody's going to do that. And I, fell apart I wallowed for a couple of days and it was very funny because my very loving and supportive husband said honey I think you're having a little bit of a panic reaction and I said oh you think you think I'm panicking a little bit I mean I was like <laughs> nuts and then, and then I, I said okay that's enough I've done it that's enough let's get over it. what what can I do that I do and just do it in service of others and I thought well I'll just start a coaching group And so I started, I think we called it the Wednesday coaching group, nothing brilliant. And I put it out on social media and I put it out on a newsletter and I had people show up from across the U S Canada, from Trinidad, from Australia. And I thought, well, we're going to stay together a month or so and say kind of, what's it like where you are and what's it like, how are you feeling? What are you doing? What's your country like? And we went through that and then we kept going and people pivoted their businesses. They took their brick and mortar businesses online. They took their face-to-face coaching online. People transformed and that community stayed together until the end of 2020. <laughs> and I'm still in touch with many of them. And out of that, I I started two membership groups out of that. I started a writing membership group for people that have to write for business or some for pleasure, mostly people that you know everything from a dog trainer to a television writer who just needed that safe space cuz it grew out of i no longer have my coffee shop of writers so hey let's do it this way and we're still going strong and i started a a membership group for women entrepreneurs it was like okay so many of you have pivoted in your business or you've started over here let me give you some advice and i joined with a partner and she's the systems and process specialist i'm the mindset and growth expert and we call it the 2X Club because it's earn twice as much, work half as hard. So those came right out of the, you know, those dark moments of despair, like, oh, my gosh, what do I do now? And then looking around and thinking, okay, well, I'll try this. And, you know, desperation makes you very creative. You meet those needs and and you find out things work, just like you did in the pandemic. I don't think it was an accident that you said, ooh. Community, communication, let's talk to people.
2: And mm-hmm. I'm sure
0: your absolutely.
2: audience absolutely. Well, they always say that obstacles are really opportunities. And yeah, they
3: say that. sounds like. Yeah, and but at the moment like, you think.
1: But it ah, sounds like while you were struggling with that, you always had your hope. Yeah. Your hope philosophy came first yeah. and guided you yeah. through.
3: Yeah, I just really did believe if you care enough about it, if it's important, and by the way, it's you could try things out. I've tried out a million things and said, okay, this didn't work. Abandon this, abandon that. And more and more, I become more streamlined on what I love and where I think I serve the best and the most. And those are the things I do. And And I do believe that those things that you Nurture will continue to build that every day does get a little bit better, even though you have the hard days doesn't mean that's forever. It means, oh, there's a dip. What do I need to do? Yeah. I need to take a nature hike. I need to have a Zoom cocktail hour with a friend. I need to do, you know, whatever you need to do to get you through. Yeah. And for me, walking was my my savior. I mean, I I, I lost my gym like everybody else did. And uh, I just started, I've always been a hiker and I went on a few of the hiking paths in Southern California, which are awesome, but there were too many people and it really scared me. So I just started doing my urban hikes, you know, around the neighborhood or in the local hills close by. Yeah. And those, that's the time to look at houses, which I love. Look at people's gardens, you know, smell things, do things. It was just so great. Listen I mean, to the birds. You know, I have a hummingbird nest that we have been watching since it's, it's in our courtyard. So she's protected. We've watched since she built this little nest. Now the chicks have hatched. We're watching her feed them. And I'm hoping I will catch them when they fledge, when they fly out. And I just went
2: through that, Libby. I had a hummingbird in my backyard, and she laid eggs, and I watched her feed them, but she was she stayed far away from me, yeah, but that- I watched the chicks fly away, <gasps> and I felt like they flew the coop. Yeah. Yeah, I had an empty nest. I know. It becomes very visceral. It's
3: like, oh, my babies have left. Yes. We, they're right outside of the stairwell in our house, so I have a window literally to the nest. We, I can stand and look at that, and just see when Mama's there, and it's so, it's amazing. It's it's amazing. But those are things we didn't have time for when we were at the office every
2: day or commuting every day. And that's true. And and you know what? On that note, I know that the entertainment business and the corporate world demands twenty four seven of your time. You mentioned that you had a stay at home husband, but how did you find all that time for your family? How else?
3: You know, you you have to set your own boundaries, and I think there's a stage where we're working our way up that ladder, where we feel like I've got to make myself indispensable, and then you do, or you believe you are, and then you you've trapped yourself. But somewhere in there, the shift happens. <laughs> Kathy, you're looking like oh, I'm yeah. like, yeah, yeah. You,
1: you got to reclaim you, it. Indispensable is not necessarily ideal. <laughs>
3: No, I don't think it is at all. And it's, you know, it's not a business model. Nobody's indispensable. Nobody can be. And it's interesting. I've got a, I've, I've coached a few women lately that are at that point where they really believe, gee, I'll just put off having a baby a little while longer. And that just makes makes me so sad. It breaks my heart. It's like, this is your life. This is your plan for your family and your future. You cannot trap yourself in believing that you can't take, you know, one of them said, I, I just can't take three months off. And I thought, three months? Try 30 years. You know, you're when you're a mom, you're a mom. It, it's like those baby birds. Yeah. You'll always be involved. Not, of course, to the level of infancy or toddlers or any of that but you gotta make that place in your life if you want it. If you don't, you don't. But it's, yeah, it's it's not being indispensable. It's being, it's being vital to the organization, but training others to do what you do and know what you know. I mean, to me, that's the mantle of leadership is making other people leaders.
1: Oh yeah, and talk about what would be career killers and what to avoid <laughs> as you're climbing the corporate ladder.
3: Well, one of them I mentioned already, and that's being invisible. If you think I do great work and therefore everybody's going to notice and reward me, you were sadly mistaken. So maybe that happens for some, but not for most. So you have to find a way to turn that spotlight on yourself once in a while. Yes, there's no I in team, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard that cliche. But there are moments when you've got to say, yeah, I did accomplish that. And yes, my team and I did this. But yes, I'm the team leader, and we surmounted that obstacle and hit this outcome or exceeded that goal. So that's one thing is you've you've got to recognize that people need to know what your value is, and it's on you to educate them educate them how hard, you know, what you're doing behind the scenes. Some people take it for granted. Whoa, you get so much done in a day. Well, yeah, that's because I'm spinning a million plates and I'm disciplined and I've trained my people. So you've got to let them in on that. That's one thing. Another thing is don't shy away from the risks. Don't shy away from the tough stuff. Raise your hand at those moments and say, how can I jump in? How can I help? How can I be of greater service? I've, I've coached a lot of women who've said, oh, I'm happy at the number two spot. And I said, are you? Are you really? And and if you really are, that's okay. But you, work, you can't work any more hours in the day. You can't work any harder than you do. You're as smart as they come. So what if you claim that spot up there? What if you said, yeah, I could do that. It's people don't tell you that you have more, more power at the top, you have more freedom. They know you get more money in a nicer office and all that stuff. But you get more freedom when you've got more control. So I think going after some of those things are are really, really great career growth opportunities. So so don't let your fear of inadequacy or not knowing everything stop you. I um, yeah, so think everybody has those
1: fears. We've interviewed several women who have said, I just always said yes. I just said yeah, yes to everything. Me too.
3: Me too. And even if you hear about imposter syndrome. To me, you got to flip that script in and think, if I, if I don't have a dash of that, at least from time to time, I must not be stretching. I must not be throwing myself into the risk territory, into the try something new, if you never feel like, I, you know, I, I sold a couple of television shows back before I started coaching. I wasn't sure where I was going with my career, and I thought... I am the world's oldest TV intern. I I have an executive. It was like I was, you know, in my 40s, my first gig. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had a good idea and the guts to pitch it. So I decided that wasn't my path. The coaching, I was sort of building both at the same time. And my heart was in the coaching and it started to build and take off. So I said, that's the way to go for me. But I tried that other thing and thought, oh, my God, all these people around me, they know so much more than I do which is usually, a, I think, a prescription for success. You want to be the dumbest person on the team if you are so lucky to be surrounded by great, smart people with more expertise than you have.
2: Yes, from your lips. And on a, second, on a separate note, you mentioned walking and being with the birds and the animals. What do you do that's fun for your time when you're free?
3: You know, I have to say, I read all every spare moment. I read. I, I am a voracious reader. It was all about business books for so many years, and now I am such a consumer of fiction. And um, took some time during the pandemic. Um, I had started a novel earlier on, and I put it away because I never had time. And finally, I, I hit a milestone birthday and said, "Okay, now it's, this is my time. I'm gonna." I'm going to pull that out, and it would just happen to the pandemic. I said, "Okay, I'm going to pull that out now and start revising." And I sought out a couple of other great writers, and said, "Are you open to a fiction group every Saturday? We've been together for a year. They've both finished theirs. I'm still on another revision, and uh I plan to have a novel out in the next year." So, All right, a novel,
1: yeah. yeah. It's Mary been a labor. Have, of, Mary and yeah. I have a reading group, a book group that we've had for decades. And I have
2: several writing groups that I'm a member of as well. Is that right? Yeah.
3: Um, And that was part of starting the writer, my, my, my writing membership group where people come, because I knew writers need support. So I started this group 90 minutes once a week, and it's just kind of sacred space. And they're working on different things. And I jump into a breakout room, to give edits or notes or help with direction. And it's such a joy to be able to give that back to other writers because there are so many people that, that struggle but want to write. And there are people that are good writers but don't know it. And you know, everybody's got a story. So you know, you've got book groups and writing groups. I just, that is my, I won't even say guilty pleasure because I don't feel guilty at all when I dip into a, a good book. And in fact, I make my fiction. I keep a fiction list, and I make that available for people from time to time. So,
1: oh, um, we'll have to for you. Too, speak at get your list.
3: Oh, and I always steal from other people's book groups. I always want to know what they're reading.
1: Oh yeah, oh, we well, always we'll, borrow. We'll from come each up other. with some for you. Yeah, that'd be great. And is there anything we might have missed that you'd like to add, such as maybe some advice for our listeners? Your best advice.
3: What do you think, your listeners? struggle with or challenged by the most, from all the people that you talk to, and you've talked to, I don't know, hundreds at this point, what do you think they they need the most?
1: Good question. I think the confidence to know that the ideas they have in their brain can take them somewhere. Confidence. Oh.
3: You know what, I, th- I think you nailed it, particularly for women and all the data that we've got from Catalyst and Lean In and all those organizations. That's a big issue. So, so I would say surround yourself with people that boost your confidence. Find that safe zone, just like the two of you obviously have done for each other. Because one thing I, I get out of my groups that I coach is, wow, you, you all think this is a good idea? No, we think it's a great idea. You think I should do this? Yes, you should have done that yesterday. Get going. That building that confidence muscle, and I think you've got to find other people that just beam that back at you. It's that sort of empirical evidence, that, that moment, I always call that the damn I'm good moment when you can say, yeah, I, I'm really good at this. And, and continuing to find that from other people, from yourself, and just knowing that even on the bad days, you got to build that confidence muscle and, and get back there read your CV, read your bio, read your LinkedIn profile and say, oh yeah, I forgot I did all that. I really did that. <laughs> it's <And> always surprising. <laughs> it is. And, and when people, I know when I, I, I started that, what I thought was going to be a little coaching group, I'll tell you, I was so incredibly humbled. I had people that, one gal from Australia, she showed up twice a week for two different groups. And she said, you know, I said, well, how did you even find me? She said, Oh, I read your book, The Hope Driven Leader. And it was like, oh, somebody ac- across the sea read something I wrote. And other people like, oh, I've followed your, your newsletter for years. It was like, really? And it was just so amazing to think that, oh, what I said and did, you know, little me actually connected, landed with some people. And that was to me, was a true confidence builder to hear Thank people you. say that. Yeah. Oh,
2: great, Libby. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Libby Gill, executive coach, author, and leadership expert who's inspired countless professional women and men to step into their power and drive success. And
1: thank Thank you so much, Libby. You can find Libby on her website, libbygill.com, on Twitter, on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Anything else,
3: Libby? (laughs) I'm everywhere. And
1: Google her books and read her books. And we would ask you please also to follow our Late Boomers podcast on Instagram and write to us on lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, with any feedback on our episodes, because we are here to serve, entertain, and inform you. And thanks again, Libby. Thank Thank you you. Mary
3: and Kathy. You are awesome. Keep doing what you do. You are in your zone of genius for sure.
2: Oh, thank you. And you are awesome.
1: (laughs) Thank you for joining us on late boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style power and impact please visit our website and get in touch with us at LateBoomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of late boomers, go to EWN podcast This podcast is also
2: available on Spotify, Apple podcast and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power and impact.